ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, do you think we have anything at all to talk about? Was there anything that happened in the world of ETFs last week that you think might be of interest to me? Joining me will be Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And yes, we are going to touch on this iShares Bitcoin ETF filing. Just when you think the uh, Bitcoin ETF saga is dragging a little bit, and I know a lot of you do, something new comes along. And so Todd and I uh, are going to discuss that noteworthy development, though I promise we won't go overboard here. We'll, we'll keep that brief because there are actually several other big stories in ETFs that we're going to bat around as well. So uh, really looking forward to that. Also joining me this week will be DJ Tierney, Director and Senior Investment Portfolio Strategist at Charles Schwab Asset Management, who, of course, is a top five ETF issuer. And so far this year, they have three of the top 20 ETFs and inflows, including the very popular Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SCHD. So we'll look at those ETFs. Uh, we're also going to discuss ETF flows just at a high level. And then we're actually going to spend a decent amount of time discussing Schwab's direct indexing platform. Uh, they've continued to enhance and build out that offering, enough so that they actually put out a uh, press release on these enhancements a couple of weeks ago. So we'll have a full conversation around direct indexing as well. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Tim Coyne, head of ETFs at T. Rowe Price, who just last week... They launched five new active ETFs. These are uh, in addition to the 10 active ETFs they already offered. And their ETF lineup overall is now north of a billion dollars in assets. Uh, so a lot I want to cover here. I want to talk about the 
rise of active ETFs in general. We'll talk transparent versus non-transparent ETF structure because T. Rowe now uses both. Uh, We'll talk ETF fees. I think this should be an interesting conversation with a fund company that has a long legacy in active management, especially on the mutual fund side, but they're now clearly getting much more aggressive in ETFs. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most excited, how much are you looking forward to talking Bitcoin ETFs with me? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm so glad it's part of the The good thing is there's been so many amazing and exciting stories to talk about, and I'm your uh, all, all utility player in this segment. So hopefully we'll get to move on to some other exciting things. But, yeah, we're back to Bitcoin potential ETFs. It's uh, unbelievable. And I am going to try to keep this brief because, again, I know I have beaten this topic into the ground. My guess is I'd probably have, like, double the listeners if I just stopped talking about Bitcoin ETFs altogether. But, look, I think we would all agree it's uh, certainly noteworthy that BlackRock filed for a Bitcoin ETF because – I feel like it it came out of left field, just given the uh, current regulatory backdrop in in crypto. So just to kick things off, what were your initial thoughts on uh, that development, Todd? Well, honestly, when I saw the news that there was an unnamed source talking about this, I thought it was you, (laughs) ahead of my appearing on the podcast, for an excuse for us to talk about it. I was surprised. You know, the SEC has been consistent with concerns about fraud and manipulation for a spot Bitcoin ETF. They are fighting a battle uh, against Grayscale, defending their efforts to both uh, well, to not have a spot Bitcoin ETF to protect investors, but also have a futures-based product. You know, we'll, I think the NASDAQ is going to end up doing surveillance uh, in order to support the effort. Will that make a difference? I don't know. Um, you know, BlackRock doesn't launch products just to launch products. They launch a lot of products. They have a lot of success. They've brought many uh, products. They've been innovative in their early days. They've been a strong, fast follower and use their scale to an advantage in more recent days. I'm just skeptical that we're going to see any spot Bitcoin ETF in 2023. And uh, Eric Valchunas and I have another bet. Uh, I believe we will not have a spot Bitcoin ETF in the United States uh, that is approved in 2023. Of course, he believes there is. I think you and he have T-shirts uh, to show which side they're on. Um, I feel good about it because we just don't have this. The, the regulatory environment isn't favorable towards such a product. I imagine you think we're going to have one. I think you, you think they've got the tea leaves lined up. Well, let, let me ask you this. And, and look, I want to say I'm not here to peddle uh, conspiracy theories on this podcast. I think I, I've been fortunate to grow this into a, a you know a nice size platform. If you want to see my uh, conspiracy theories, you can go follow me out on Twitter. <laughs> but but here's what I will ask you, Todd. I mean, BlackRock is not in the business of just uh, 
you know, filing things for fun. You know, we can have a, a, a conversation around whether or not they actually bring products to market and see what works, fine. But in terms of actually filing, they're not going to just do this for fun. And so it, it feels like they know something. You know, you're talking about the world's largest asset manager, somebody who's very well connected uh, to government officials, to uh, regulators. They clearly have a direct channel to regulators, as I think a lot of fun companies do, right? And And so I feel like... They have to have received some sort of message from somewhere that now is the time to file. Now, to to what you were saying, the SEC has been crystal clear that they are not going to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF until they have some sort of regulatory oversight of crypto exchanges, whether that's you know, a fully regulated crypto exchange, whether to, to what you were alluding to, there's a, a surveillance sharing agreement in place between the ETFs listing exchange, in this case, NASDAQ, and an underlying uh, spot crypto exchange. But it just feels like uh, BlackRock knows something here. Why, why else would they file? Well, well right. I, I agree with you. They feel like they know something. Whether or not what they know is going to lead to a spot Bitcoin ETF being approved this year and for them to then launch a product. Uh, and if they are successful in getting it approved and they do launch a product, it will be tremendously successful because mm-hmm. in BlackRock, their strategies are widely used within model portfolios across the overall industry. I think there's a, there is some demand for advisors to have access to this uh, as uh, having spot Bitcoin desk. I just, I think they, I think they're smart to get in line early in case the SEC uh, shifts their stance. Yeah. Has the SEC shifted their stance? I don't know. You know, they, I don't know that anything, any indication publicly about that, but certainly BlackRock has done so. And I, I guess what's also notable is BlackRock has filed, and I think we have one other firm that refiled uh, for a product, but it's not as if we have a dozen. You know, there were a dozen products uh, filed from diff- different firms, and I'm ballparking a dozen, so please don't fact-check me, uh, or, or at least don't do stuff uh, here. I do it on Twitter. Um, the industry is not in agreement. Either they're not in alignment in the structure and how it'll be that's different than BlackRock, or they don't think now is the time is right, and they don't want to frustrate the SEC with filings that are going to get immediately rejected, I think. And that's actually what leads me to believe that BlackRock does know something here because we, we see, especially in the crypto space, like I think about the Ether Futures ETF filings a few weeks ago, Grayscale filed for that, and everybody just assumed Grayscale knew something and they, they jumped in you know, right after them. In this case, we're not seeing those copycat filings yet. Now, maybe we will. Maybe we'll see a whole slew of them today and tomorrow. Who, who knows? But to, to what you were saying, the SEC hasn't appeared to publicly shift their stance uh, they, they've, if anything, I feel like been much more aggressive in cracking down on the entire crypto ecosystem. And that's why this timing just uh, of this BlackRock filing just is, is surprising, but also eyebrow raising. And uh, I, I guess fertile ground for conspiracy theories, uh, which are always fun. But uh, Todd, we will move on. Uh, again, if people want to follow the saga, I would encourage you to follow me on Twitter because I can't stop myself from uh, from tweeting about it. Um, okay, so as I noted at the top, we are going to jump around on several different uh, ETF topics this week. And uh, I guess first, let's go with another big piece of news from earlier last week, which was Amplify ETFs announcing an agreement to acquire ETFMG's ETF lineup. 
So if you look, Amplify has around four and a half billion dollars in assets. ETFMG something like three and a half billion. So this would be roughly eight million in assets combined. Uh, what did you think of that news? So I thought that was great for Amplify. You know, they, they have a strong suite of covered call ETFs. Uh, Devo DIVO is the largest of those products. It's been very popular in the past year. But they are known uh, and, and are a, one of the firms that has an offering within thematic ETFs. They've got blockchain with block. They've got a lithium ETF. They've got online retail as well. But what ETFMG is going to bring is diversification, uh, adding in cybersecurity, cannabis, mobile payments. I think those are the three largest thematic-oriented ETFs. You know, we at Vetify, and I know you in the audience uh, knows, we consistently are asking advisors uh, questions to gauge their sentiment. And we hear on a consistent basis how they're using thematic ETFs. It tends to be a mid-single-digit percentage of client assets uh, for many advisors. But what's changing are the themes that they will put in favor uh, in one year or another. The, the pendulum swings from one uh, thematic or two uh, strategies to another. And so it helps to be an asset manager that offers more than just two or three thematic ETFs. And so they not only doubled their overall asset base, they doubled the number of high, you know, well-known thematic ETFs that are available. And I, I think we're, we're seeing more and more that thematic ETFs are, are here to stay. Uh, you know, we at Vetify certainly believe in it. We, we as, as the audience also knows, we added, uh, we acquired the indexes behind Robo Global, that's behind the ETFs Robo, ROBO, and HTEC, and Think, TH, and Q. But there's a lot of products that are out there. And so bringing these under one roof, again, with Amplify and ETFMG, is, is certainly a good thing. And ETFMG, you know, faced legal challenges over the years. I don't think we're going to go back that far in history, but it is notable, you know, these products were, uh, you know, popular in the past, and then there was some tainting uh, to them, the ETFMG products. So a new home is a good thing. I think that's all really well said. I mean, Amplify, I think, has established himself as a, uh, you know, a nice brand in the ETF space, ETFMG, whether for good or bad reasons, everybody knows who they are. And I think this will position Amplify longer terms, clearly as a leader in the thematic category. Now, to your point, they have some other products that are, uh, you know, can be part of a, a core portfolio like Devo. But as you go down the lineup, you, you hit on some of these tickers. I mean, ETFMG, they have the prime cybersecurity ETF hack that has $1.5 billion in it. They have that Junior Silver Miners ETF, SILJ, the Mobile Payments ETF, IPay, uh, of course the uh, the Marijuana ETF, right? The Alternative Harvest ETF, MJ, and then you look at Amplify. Their top three thematic ETFs right now they have Block, BLOK, which which I've talked a lot about on the podcast, the Transformational Data Sharing ETF. They have the Online Retail ETF and iBuy. They have a Lithium and Battery Technology ETF, ticker BATT. So. When you look at the combined lineup, they're covering a lot of ground there. And uh, I think you're right. While thematic ETFs may be a small sliver in a portfolio overall, advisors are using these, you know, in that in that sliver. And I've talked a lot about, you know, my view on those thematic ETFs as a behavioral tool. I'm not going get, to get into that. Um, but, Todd, let me ask you this. Are you surprised that 
we haven't seen more deals like this in the ETF space, more consolidation, just given how important scale seems to be in the uh, the ETF Teradome? So I think scale is, is certainly an advantage for many asset managers. The challenge is, you, is, are there products that are worth acquiring that get you someplace faster than if you got there on your own? And so you, you listed... Uh, billion dollar plus ETFs or close to billion dollar ETFs or former billion dollar ETFs in the case of MJ. I think mm-hmm. it's fallen out of favor, but it's still a leader in, the, in that space. There just aren't that many of them from that many firms. So there are firms that offer that have dipped their toe or entered the ETF marketplace using thematic ETFs. But if you're a firm that you, you might just want to launch a competing product uh, and try to, to win that market share instead of trying to acquire that market share. But yeah, there are now a lot of ETF providers in the marketplace. And for somebody like yourself and, and, and me and, and my colleagues at Vetify, that's a good thing because there's more firms to cover. There's there's a, a broad array of products. I just don't know that, you know, two struggling or, or, or moderately sized firms coming together uh, you know, not in, I'm not referring to Amplify and, and ETFMG. I'm talking about anybody else that might be out there. You have to make an acquisition for the right reasons, and it's got to be a, a meaningful product in order to, to make it worth acquiring. Well, I think this will be a, an interesting one to watch. Again, combined firm, $8 billion, and, uh, you know, Amplify has shown a willingness to bring new products to market, so uh, I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, okay, continuing on here with some other noteworthy stories from last week. Uh, you heard at the top that I'll be visiting with T. Rowe Price's Tim Coyne, who, as you know, they just launched five new ETFs last Thursday. And I know that you know that because you wrote a really nice piece on mm-hmm. one of these ETFs that same day. And so do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, T. Rowe Price and perhaps that ETF you wrote about, which was the T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation ETF, ticker symbol TCAF? What, why did that one catch your attention enough to write about it? Yeah, so one, I want to do a slight clarification. It's the Tiro Price Capital Appreciation Equity ETF, and that's the key focus there. So yeah. the what caught my eye is the manager or a manager at Tiro Price, David Giroux, uh, is a star manager in my mind. He runs the Tiro Price Capital Appreciation Mutual Fund. $50 billion in assets under management. I'm a former mutual fund uh, head of research before joining Vetify. Um, and I was well familiar with the strategy, well familiar with the fund. It's been closed for a number of years. So we used to cover it for the existing shareholders, but nobody could get in. We would write about it. People would be interested. We'd actually get complaints why we were writing about a fund and recommending it when nobody could get into it. Now you can get into the equity version of this strategy from Tiro Price. And that's just really exciting. It's also fully transparent, which I know you're going to end up talking about uh, semi-transparent versus fully transparent with, with Tim Coyne. And I'd love to hear his thoughts on why they chose to go the route that they did. But it's just really exciting to me when asset managers bring their best into the ETF space. You know, we, we a week before uh, or so, we had the team behind Franklin Income mutual fund. I think it's a $70 billion mutual fund franchise. They now have an ETF version of that strategy that's now available. We've got Fidelity that's launched successful products that are versions. JP Morgan has had success uh, with with versions, uh, ETF versions of active strategies. 
and now we've got firm, you know, we've got Goldman Sachs uh, helping others. You know, one of the other articles that I wrote about in that busy week last week is uh, tied to Eagle Capital, which is a pretty uh, runs a pretty substantial SMA, I think twenty billion dollars overall, and they're going they've thrown their hat into the ring with a filing in partnership or with some support and consultancy from Goldman Sachs. So it's just really exciting times in, for actively managed ETFs and to be covering actively managed ETFs. Okay, so a lot to unpack. There are some very interesting points. I liked your uh, the, well. I liked your point on the um, T Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Equity Mutual Fund being closed to new investors. I think that's interesting because clearly the ETF structure is being used to open up access here. I, I think that's really noteworthy. I, I haven't seen that uh, talked about much, but you know, to your point on all of these uh, brand name active managers getting involved in ETFs. I think you rattled off Franklin, Fidelity, J.P. Morgan. Goldman Sachs. You mentioned the piece you wrote last week on uh, Eagle Capital Management, which, by the way, what's interesting there, you you noted this, is they're using Goldman Sachs ETF Accelerator, which is uh, Goldman's white label platform. And of course, that's been a very hot area of ETFs, right? White labelers. When you think about firms like ETF Architect and uh, Title and exchange traded uh, concepts, I, I guess I'm curious, do you think Goldman can have success in that uh, space, just helping other firms bring new ETFs to market? I do. I, I think there's a distinction. So I do think that Goldman can and will have success in that space. But I think there's a bit of a distinction with what they're doing and the three firms that are, that are wonderful firms. And I know you've had them on and I uh, know them within the industry. Uh, but what Goldman is doing is leveraging more of its institutional expertise they're a leading liquidity provider. They have a risk management framework. They're more of a consultant, uh, so as opposed to the white labeling services that I believe uh, Title and Alpha Architect and ETC are offering. And Goldman is not helping manage the fund. They are really using all of their relationships within the broader ETF ecosystem to support uh, a firm like Eagle Capital. And I think there was another firm that actually filed in you know, with a consultancy you have to just think about how many relationships Goldman Sachs has within the institutional world, uh, supporting asset managers in a variety of ways. It, it's just hard. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I'm going to get the line I did in my article correct, but if you're go- showing up to a, a party 30 years late, it helps to have a friend introduce you around to the right <laughs> people, and that's what I think is happening here. Goldman Sachs is, is that friend, uh, and, and we are, of course, part of this ETF party. I love that. I think it's a great uh, analogy. And by the way, the other asset manager that is using Goldman's ETF Accelerator, I I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, it's Brandes, B-R-A-N-D-E-S. So they filed uh, for an international ETF, a uh, U.S. small mid-cap value ETF, and then a U.S. value ETF. So, again, another uh, asset manager to watch. Um, Todd, as I think about this continued rise of active ETFs. Clearly more investors are using them. And so I'm actually going to use that as a transition to get into something else you wrote last week. I mean, you were obviously very busy writing uh, last week, but I, I flagged your story on the chart of the week. And that was on advisor usage of ETFs overall. So not just active ETFs, but all ETFs. And this chart showed that only 20% of advisors had more than half of their assets invested in ETFs. So, So let me repeat that. Only 20% of advisors had more than 50% of their clients' assets invested in ETFs. Did that number 
surprise you? I, I guess I was expecting something a little bit higher. So I was too. And again, this was data from a survey we asked advisors during an ETF webcast. So the sample size is not as complete in terms of all advisors that are out there. They've self-selected themselves to attend a webcast that's been marketed on the ETF Trends website about an ETF um, on a specific topic. So I would have expected that more of the people who were responding to this survey would have been what we refer to in the piece as ETF diehards. You're right, more than half of the assets. And that wasn't the case. And so as I looked over the data, that was just a reminder to me of helping explain what is actually in the portfolio. And as I think you know, this is one of my uh, go-to topics about what's inside a fund, what's inside a portfolio, what's inside an ETF. And so I played around with a a made-up model portfolio of my own that included uh, some some well-known blue-chip stocks, uh, in, on an individual basis, it included, I think, three different mutual funds, one from Vanguard, where there is an ETF version of it, and then two uh, from uh, one from, from PIMCO and one from uh, the Capital Group American Funds family to just showcase there were ETF alternatives that were direct versions in the case of Vanguard, dividend depreciation, VIG, or more analogs run in similar concept and style. So I, I highlighted the PIMCO active bond ETF instead of PIMCO total return, for example. And I, I did something with capital groups, active large cap growth mutual fund versus the growth fund of America. More to just highlight that it won't take, well, two things. One, it's important to know what's inside the portfolio and you might have more exposure to Apple or Microsoft than you might think of because it's inside the ETF, but also we're still very early days in the ETF marketplace, 30 years. I think I mentioned the party's been going for 30 years, and yet many advisors are only dipping, you know, having some exposure to ETFs and room for growth. And here's how we could get there. If advisors took their active uh, equity and active fixed income mutual funds and looked at the same firm, but looking at the ETF versions of those strategies is an easy step. And I think we're, we're on the path to that happening. This won't surprise you. Those are the exact same two takeaways I had. Just to, to parrot what you were saying, if you are mixing different types of investments, if you're sprinkling in ETFs or, or even a heavy user of ETFs, but you're also owning individual stocks or mutual funds or, or something else, make sure you know what you own. You don't want to be doubled up on uh, NVIDIA. Or, or something. And then the other one is, is to your second point, which is that, yeah, I, I smell opportunity here. If we invert that 20%, that means 80% of advisors are less than 50% in, invested in ETFs. That is a lot of room to run for ETFs. And, and I know everybody out there would probably call both you and I ETF cheerleaders. But if you look at the data, I mean, that's that's got to be exciting for anybody involved in the ETF space. That is a lot of uh, a lot of runway there. Um, okay, Todd, before I let you go, I, I guess on this note of knowing what you own, that's obviously something that you have championed for a long time, as long as I can remember. And it's also clearly a mission of Vetify, right, to help investors and advisors uh, with investment research. And I saw last week that Vetify is a finalist for research innovation for the uh, wealthmanagement.com awards. I saw your uh, tweet on this. 
I'd love to have you briefly comment on that. I know it's always nice to be recognized uh, in public for something like that. Uh, it, it certainly is. You know, you're right. I've, I've been telling this, a version of the story, and it's tweaked and, and uh, ebbed and flowed over the years and, and uh, different firms. But I'm so proud of the team that we have at Vetify and the fact that we're being recognized for research innovation. Certainly, the ETF industry is known for its innovation, so for us to be uh, held up there within the space for it. Uh, and I think many of my, you know, the audience knows many of my teammates, Roxana Islam, focuses on sectors and industries, and Stacey Morris is our, and I believe your resident energy expert and leads the support for energy infrastructure index strategies. Dave Nottig needs no introduction, but he's now pivoted towards a vision of what to do next in finance. Laura Krieger uh, often spots up-and-coming ETFs using our sentiment data, in addition to you know running an editorial team that continues to grow. We now have Jen Nash, uh, who has not been a, a part of the podcast to date, but she's covering the macroeconomy and markets, connecting those to ETFs. And I previously mentioned, you know, the RoboGlobal uh, Index team that's helping us out uh, from thematic index investing approach. So I'm really honored. Uh, and I wrote an article that just kind of talks about all the things that we do. We're really proud of the recognition. It's, it's an honor to be a finalist. Uh, for a wealthy, I think that's what, what the wealthmanagement.com awards uh, are known as. Hopefully we win. Uh, we have no control over that, but we'll continue to help advisors understand what they own, what they don't own, and what the future is for the overall industry. And so thank you for, for highlighting that. I'm sorry for what probably sounded a bit like a commercial, but I'm just really honored to be working with this team. And, uh, and I know, uh, I know you have respect for it too, because we are, a regular guest of yours. No, congratulations, and that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I'm not just because we have a partnership. I think anybody who listens to this podcast, that research and uh, the the innovation at Vetify comes through loud and clear. I, that, that's one of the reasons people listen to this podcast is to hear all of the expertise that you have uh, in the Vetify stable. So I'm, I'm very excited for you. Obviously, you know, love and value our partnership. So congrats on that. And, uh, hey, we're going to have to leave it there. But I think I did a pretty good job limiting the uh, Bitcoin ETF, uh, ETF talk this week, don't you think? I think that was good. <laughs> I, I know that Eric Valchunas will listen to the first part of this wearing his and no Bitcoin ETF T-shirt. That you and he have together. Yeah. Now I'm not making any promises uh, for the future. I, I may get back down the uh, Bitcoin ETF rabbit hole. But Todd, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. It's been a pleasure. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. These days, we're all investors, trying to be smart with our money despite our worst impulses. But at iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor. One that's just waiting to be let out. Leave your worst impulses behind with iShares ETFs and insights and let your best investor out. Visit iShares.com for more information. My next guest is DJ Tierney, Director and Senior Investment Portfolio Strategist at Charles Schwab Asset Management, who currently offers 29 ETFs, nearly $300 billion in assets, 
That includes three of the top 20 ETFs and inflows this year, which we'll get into. DJ is now joining me from San Francisco. DJ, always a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nate. Great to be back. I'm looking forward to talking to you again today. Yeah, so a lot we're going to uh, cover, but let's actually start with ETF flow so far this year. And as part of that, we can certainly dive into those uh, three Schwab ETFs I noted. But high level, just give me your take on ETF flows as we, uh, I I guess, are hitting the halfway point of the year, which is hard to believe. What's stood out to you? Yeah, I think I think we all have to take note of the large flows uh, that we've seen into the fixed income category this year. Uh, they really are significant, and there's definitely something going on there that uh, that we should talk about with the, the interest rate backdrop. And then, uh, secondly, you know, we should acknowledge also, you know, overall flows are a little lower, uh, you know, particularly in equity ETFs. Though there's evidence that's picking up more recently. <clears throat> overall flows are, they're lower than 22, lower than 21. But still, you know, significant net inflows, right? We're, we're close to $190 billion uh, year-to-date into ETFs. So clear evidence that ETFs remain the investment vehicle of choice. We don't have to get uh, into too much detail, but on the equity side, and I've talked about this in, in, over the past several months, obviously equity inflows have been muted, but you look at the S&P 500 up 15 16%. Certainly, if you look at something like the Qs, you know, running north of 30%. Do you think investors are just a, a, a bit skittish or hesitant to jump into equities and, and maybe they look at, and we can talk more about the fixed income side, but you look at the, uh, treasury yields north of 5% and they're saying, hey, you know what, I'm happy to park there and, and wait to see how things play out. Do, do you think it's as simple as that or do you think there's more to the, uh, the, the lack of equity inflows, especially on the U.S. side? Yeah, I think I think there's just been a lot of skepticism about the the, the prospects for the equity market. I think any time you've got a Federal Reserve, um, you know, taking the action they've taken over the last year, uh, it gives you the alternative, right? I mean, you can you can earn five percent in cash now, uh, and you can earn five percent um, out into the intermediate maturity spectrum. So you have a choice. So I think that is playing a playing a role, and it makes sense with the flows we're seeing in the in the bond ETFs uh, and other vehicles. And I, and I do think, I think this has been a rally uh, that has surprised a lot of strategists. If you look at expectations from, from the street this year, uh, equities are handily beating them. So um, I think all those things have come into play. Yeah, and again, I should note that U.S. equity ETFs have been making a bit of a comeback here recently on flows. And as you noted, we're around $200 billion for ETFs overall. So if you you know, play that out for the remain, uh, remainder of the year, you're talking, you know, 400, 450, up to, you know, half trillion dollars in uh, in inflows for ETFs. Not bad for a uh, a time period when people have looked at ETF flows and been a little underwhelmed. Um, so, DJ, if we get into a little more detail, I checked this morning, you do have three of the top 20 ETFs in terms of inflows this year. So that's SEHD, the uh, Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, SEHI, which is the Schwab 5- to 10-year corporate bond ETF, and then SCHO, which is the Schwab Short-Term Treasury ETF. Now, from my perspective, uh, I, I think SCHO makes perfect sense, given where Treasury uh, yields are at, what we were just talking about. That's a pretty straightforward story to me. And we, and we can talk SCHD in a moment. But I'm curious to hear about SCHI, because I think that might uh, surprise some people, just given that there's at least some credit risk involved here. And I know a decent chunk of investors are concerned about a slowing economy and even a potential recession. So what do you think has been going on uh, w- with the interest around this ETF? 
Yeah, so overall, you know, we're we're really not too surprised to see flows into the category. You know, if you if you just kind of look back at a, at a broader view, intermediate corporate bonds uh, haven't delivered this kind of yield uh, in over a decade. You really have to go back to 2009 before you had uh, yields in excess of 5% for intermediate uh, investment grade corporate bonds. And and there is a, you know, this there's kind of a strategic um, rationale to terming out a little bit. Um, if and even performance since rates peaked in the fourth quarter of last year, you know, uh, intermediate corporate bonds have performed pretty well year to date. Um, our fixed income strategist Kathy Jones is, is constructive on terming out, and it, it, you know, I, I mentioned before, you can earn five percent in cash right now, but if if front end rates uh, start to fall, that'll go away, and you'll you'll face reinvestment risk, where you know you can uh, an intermediate maturity fund like SCHI, uh, you're out, you've got a maturity a, a duration of six years, so you can lock in those rates for a longer period of time. And then if you look at the fund itself, boy, there's a lot of diversification there, right? It, it tracks a, an index with thousands of bonds in it. The ETF itself has over 2,000 bonds in it, so you get a lot of diversification. And then with its expense ratio of just three basis points, you know, it's significantly lower cost than the category average, which is uh, 16 basis points. So all those things, I think, add up to making it an, an attractive uh, choice for a lot of investors. Yeah, it's interesting to your point on term or, or duration. If you look at the underlying flows into fixed income ETFs, you are seeing allocations really all across the curve and even more so on the longer end uh, here more recently. So I think you're right that investors are looking to you know, perhaps lock in higher rates uh, right now. Um, with the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SEHD, that is currently your most popular ETF with nearly $50 billion in assets. And that thing has taken in nearly $14 billion over, over just the past year alone. It's remarkable. I guess the question I have for you here is, uh, if you look at performance this year, SEHD is down about 2% compared to the S&P 500, which I mentioned is up about 16%. Now, I, I want to know, things were reversed last year, right? SEHD outperformed by about 15% for, for the entire year. But do you want to talk a little bit about the methodology underpinning this ETF and, and why you think it does continue to resonate with investors, even despite that recent performance? Yeah, I mean, yeah, to to the to the performance year to date. I mean, there has been a real divergence in performance, and if and if you look at the broad uh, factor categories of g- growth versus value, right, you've seen a real divergence there. Where growth, you know, whether it's you're looking at the triple Qs um, or other growth vehicles like SCHGRs, you know, you've had tremendous performance. And then if you look at the value uh, factor funds, they've they've underperformed. And SCHD, the dividend ETF category in general, tends to skew towards the value factor. So that's kind of weighed uh, on performance year to date. You know, frankly, we're we're encouraged to see the flows continue because, you know, we really, uh, advisors, most advisors will tell investors not to get too caught up in a quarter or two of performance and look at the big picture. Um, the methodology for SCHD is really, you know, pretty pretty elegant. Uh, it, it focuses not just on companies that are paying dividends. It's index that it tracks really focuses and emphasizes the sustainability of dividends. In other words, not just companies that are paying dividend now, but are positioned to continue to pay them and even grow them in the future. And so it it screens on some fundamental metrics, uh, specifically companies with strong cash flow to debt, return on equity, uh, a five-year dividend growth rate, and then its actual current dividend yield. And so it it takes all those things into into account 
Um, and if you look at the long-term results of it, you know, it's done pretty well in the category three-year, five-year, ten-year, you know, back to its inception date. And, you know, all those, all that methodology and all the thoughtfulness in design and its expense ratio, again, it's a Schwab ETF, so maybe not surprising, just six basis points, you know, in the category average of 38 basis points. It stands out for low cost and some thoughtful methodology. So we think all those things are, uh, are why it's really resonating with investment, investors over the last few years. Yeah, and it's interesting because we were talking about the muted U.S. equity ETF flows overall, but of course, SEHD does continue to, to, to take in money. And I think it comes back to what you were just saying in terms of the, the, the quality filter around this ETF. And maybe investors, if they are a little skittish, a little hesitant right now, they want to make sure they're, they're looking at fundamentals. And that's really what SEHD, you know, hangs its hat on. Uh, DJ, let's uh, pivot from ETFs now because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to discuss your direct indexing platform. Uh, it's called Schwab Personalized Indexing. And I, I guess first, just overall, how has that been going? What type of uh, uptake have you seen to this point on that platform? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Nate. So that uh, the Schwab Personalized Indexing uh, was unveiled uh, with a public launch in April of 2022. So a little over a year now in market, and 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 frankly, we've been really excited uh, and heartened with the, with the adoption, number of accounts, and asset flows. It's been healthy, um, and and we're really excited to be a participant in this category in direct indexing. And how are you seeing this platform being used? Is it primarily in taxable accounts, and are investors and advisors? Uh, wholesale implementing this within those taxable accounts, like replacing all existing holdings, or is it a complement? Just just give us a flavor for how this platform is being used. Yeah, thanks. So, so first, ours is ours is an advisor-led solution. Um, you you can't enroll in Schwab Personalized Indexing unless you're working with an independent advisor on our platform or engaged with a with a Schwab advisor through our branch network. So we really position it that way and really appropriately because, it, to your point, it's for taxable investors only. And so for suitability, we want, we want an advisor looking at the big picture of a portfolio, whereas ETFs you know, can be a be-all, end-all, and you can really construct a portfolio for almost any investor. But direct indexing is for core, uh, medium to longer-term taxable allocations in a portfolio. And so if, you, if, if those criteria are met, though, and the, and the, or if there's a, you know, a desire or a need for customization, Boy, when it fits, you know, the after-tax benefits uh, can really be significant. And so we're, we're seeing advisors uh, adopt it. It's not, a, you know, it's not an, an ETF replacement across the board, but for, again, that core medium to long-term equity sleeve of a portfolio, it can be a really, really nice fit. I, I was poking around on the uh, website, and in terms of the starting indexes available, I'm showing that you currently offer the Schwab 1000 Equity Index, the S&P Small Cap 600 Index, the MSCI KLD 400 Social Index, and then the MSCI EFA International Index. What type of customization can be done with these? Are there any constraints, or are these fully customizable? Yeah, so uh, like, like uh, many other providers, we offer you the ability to, to customize by excluding uh, things. And so starting with individual stocks, right, if you... If you work for a pharmaceutical company and you feel like you've got exposure to that industry by your workplace, you could uh, exclude your employer stock. We also give the ability to exclude industries and sub-industries. So maybe, again, if you work for a large pharma company, maybe you say, I I don't want any pharmaceutical exposure. So you could literally take out that industry or sub-industry. And so it's through exclusion that we offer customization. Uh, And that can make a lot of sense to help people avoid... um, 
over-concentration by virtue of their employer or, or maybe a, another part of their portfolio where they've had a long-term holding. Just a few minutes left here, so we don't need to get too far into the weeds, but can you talk a little bit about the actual user interface for this platform? Like when an investor or, I, I guess, an advisor goes into Schwab Personalized Indexing, what do they see and how do they actually interact with the platform? Yeah, so we're, we're excited. We actually recently made some, some enhancements uh, just in the last month. And so from an advisor standpoint, you know, we want to make it as easy as possible. And so starting with digital enrollment, uh, you can onboard clients. Uh, they can onboard clients uh, interacting digitally instead of, you know, paper that you might, uh, they might have previously thought of for separately managed accounts. And then after the accounts enroll, again, we want the experience to be easy and transparent. So we've got a digital dashboard where the advisor and the investor can see the results on a daily basis, see the individual holdings, see aggregate returns, and also keep track of the tax benefits as they happen. So, um, you know, we're really we're excited about that. It's the, the interaction and the experience from both the advisor and the investor standpoint um, are really becoming differentiated and, and helpful for long-term results. And the current account minimum is $100,000, is that correct? That's right, right, which, you know, we acknowledge isn't, it's not a, an insignificant sum of money, but in, in that space for direct indexing, you know, we, we lowered the bar there because many of uh, the major providers have minimums of 250000 or, or higher. So bringing it down to 100000 it can make sense for a lot of investor accounts uh, with portfolios in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxable accounts, you know, can have an impact and be accessible to them. Well, DJ, always enjoy our conversations. Uh, I, I like this, covering both ETFs and direct indexing this week. Very interesting uh, topics. Thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Nate. That was DJ Tierney, Director and Senior Investment Portfolio Strategist at Charles Schwab Asset Management. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple, low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. I'm now joined by Tim Coyne, head of ETFs at T. Rowe Price, who currently offers 15 ETFs, now at over a billion dollars in ETF assets. That includes five ETFs that just launched this past Thursday. And of course, T. Rowe is one of the larger asset managers overall, some $1.4 trillion in assets under management. They've long offered a robust lineup of mutual funds, but they've entered the ETF space uh, a little less than three years ago. They're obviously continuing to build out that suite. And Tim is now on the line with me from Baltimore. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Nate, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So like I said, uh, you entered the ETF space about three years ago, now up to 15 ETFs. Uh, to start, I'm just curious how you think everything is uh, going so far. Talk about this transition into ETF since 2020. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're super excited about the expansion of our ETF lineup. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say when we entered the active ETF market, uh, we really committed to putting our, our best foot forward for our clients. We first launched, as you mentioned, uh, our first five 
uh, products back in 2020, uh, really representing five flagship U.S. equity strategies. And we, we took a similar approach with our fixed income products and um, over the last couple of years have launched five fixed income ETFs. And, and these offerings are really provided our clients additional choice in how they access our investment expertise. So over over the last several years, we've expanded our vehicle offering, um, ETFs, SMAs, et cetera, really to respond to evolving client preferences. And we're committed to developing a comprehensive suite within uh, within ETFs to really, again, better service our clients. Um, you know, as you mentioned, just last week, we launched five transparent active ETFs, a, a growth value, small mid-cap international and a capital appreciation fund. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's really about keeping in lockstep with our clients, right? Our, our ETFs open up access to the T. Rowe Price investment strategies, providing choice uh, and really providing the best vehicle that suits uh, needs, recognizing that a lot of advisors have developed a growing preference for ETFs. And our active ETFs provide that opportunity uh, to broadly service uh, those relationships. Uh, but, I, but I also think it provides the ability to expand our client base, right, by introducing T. Rowe Price to, to new ETF advisors and, and, and generally investors. Um, and, and I think early adopters, we've seen investment advisors of all stripes, REAs, uh, retail, even some institutional interest early on. So with the you know, with the change in the financial markets as a backdrop, uh, that bottom-up fundamental active management that T. Rowe Price delivers, I think will be a really important component in a client's portfolio going forward. And, you know, the other thing that we hear a lot in some corners of the industry, it's, you know, all active managers have been kind of painted broadly with the same brush. Uh, and when in, when in reality, they're, they're very different with different levels of experience, cultures, talent, investment platforms, et cetera. So, again, giving our, our deep investment and research platform, I think this is a real strength for Tiro Price. And um, what we're doing is really delivering that strength through ETFs, and I think that is a really powerful uh, combination. So if I had to, I guess, summarize, you know, what, what our approach has been, it's been pretty straightforward. It's, you know, the what that's being delivered is Tiro Price Fundamental Investment capabilities and leveraging our vast resources that are now made available through our ETF offering and how we deliver it um, kind of twofold. Number one, longstanding investment strategies that we've now made available in ETFs. And then number two is uh, newly developed investment strategies that are designed to be delivered as, as an ETF. Um, and I think active ETFs, again, represent a, a better way to service our existing clients and, will lead to an expanded client base for us. So our goal is to, you know, continue moving on, um, expand our ETF product suite, listen to our clients, and uh, provide them with the best solutions we can. Tim, we'll obviously get into some of your uh, ETFs more specifically, but, and you were alluding to this, one of the bigger stories over the past two years or so has been the rise of actively managed ETFs. Uh, We've seen outsized inflows here, a lot of new launches, clearly much more, investor interest and you mentioned the market environment do you think the shift in the market environment was a key catalyst here or do you think there's more to the story to the rise of active etfs than that yeah i I think there is more to the story i think there's a a couple things to note here and I, i think you know historically um etfs have long been synonymous with with passively managed funds um 
But as, you know, we've discussed, like we, we are entering kind of, you know, a, kind of a new regime in the market and volatility on the rise, interest rates on the rise, economic stimulus has been unplugged. Um, and that, you know, there's no longer that rising tide to lift all boats, if you will. And I think active uh, management matters more than ever. And, um, you know, Tiro Price and others entering the active ETF space are filling a need and addressing um, what is also kind of a lack of supply. So, the, you know, I think the next 10 years is unlikely to look like the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, that, that value proposition of coupling bottom-up fundamental investment research um, plus the key benefits associated with ETFs, I think, is a very compelling offering for clients. Um, and, you know, with, with the change in market condition, I think we're also seeing – uh, an interesting inflection point from a supply and demand perspective. Like active, actively managed funds have been important parts of advisors' portfolios for a very long time, and there's clear demand for active strategies. Um, you know, industry data also points to close to 80% of advisors are using both active and passive in their portfolios. But really up until the last few years, advisors didn't have as many options to use active strategies in the ETF structure. And I, I think that's an important point because there is an increased demand for active, but there's also an increased supply for active ETF products in the market. So helping to create this this big uplift that I think we're seeing. Um, so I think it is um, the markets. I think it's also a, a vehicle discussion. And we do see a growing preference for ETFs across investor types, especially with the financial advisors, because of the key benefits delivered through the ETF structure, namely tax efficiency, that lower cost, intraday liquidity, and the, uh, the increased portfolio disclosure. So, look, I think objectively both passive and active play uh, key roles in uh, advisors' portfolios. Um, but active as, you know, is a much larger part of the market. Um, but at the ETF level, the vast majority of AUM is still concentrated in the passive product, but that's, that is changing because of active ETFs then. You know, you just look at the, the number of launches even um, over the last couple of years. You know, 60% of all new ETF launches have been active strategies over the last couple of years. So you, you can almost see the foundation of the market forming real time with the number of products, with the, the high quality active managers that are, are coming to market. And you can see the flow, you can see this now in the flows, right? Um, from flows perspective, 14% of all ETF flows last year went into active ETFs, uh, even though active ETFs only represented about 5% of the overall market. And this year, the first quarter, um, active ETFs took in about a third of all ETF flows. So that, that's meaningful. And active ETFs really, I think, are a new chapter in the overall ETF growth story. And it's, it's just really encouraging to see advisors can, to, you know, continuing to adopt ETFs um, in a meaningful way, and active ETFs specifically, as they look to enhance their clients' uh, investment performance and portfolio construction. Um, and, you know, something else I would, I would mention is that we have seen um, that this provides a, a, a lot of value to the client, and active ETFs are being adopted in, in model portfolios, as an example, both in hybrid mutual fund ETF models, but also in 100% designed ETF models. So um, just more adoption incorporation into ETF models, which I think is going to be another part of the growth story going forward. Um, and, and, as a matter of fact, ETFs are 
projected to overtake mutual funds in model portfolios this year. So that's a trend I think that, we again, we will continue to see. So, yeah, so uh, I think there's there's a lot of positive um, – Positive things happening in the market from a um, from an active ETF perspective in terms of the supply of product that's there, high quality active managers that are coming to market, and really strong in, in quality um, strategy offerings. Tim, if I look at your ETF lineup overall, it's currently led by the T Row Price Blue Chip Growth ETF ticker symbol TCHP. If we use that as sort of a proxy for how T Row approaches active management. Do you want to take us through the basic investment process here, just at a very high level, just a minute or two, I- explain the the overall investment process here? Because, again, I think this is a good indication for how T. Rowe approaches active overall. Yeah, I, I think it's a good example of, you know, again, a longstanding T. Rowe price strategy. And as you mentioned, this is our, uh, our largest fund. It was one of the uh, first products that we launched back in 2020. Um, and the ticker is TCHP or, or T-CHIP. So we, we leverage the same portfolio manager, um, and as with all of our ETFs, we leverage the full T. Rowe Price fundamental investment research capabilities. So um, here you have a, a well-established strategy, uh, the T. Rowe Price investment platform combined, again, with the benefits of the ETF structure. And, you know, I, sh- I should mention that we did hear from our clients when we were looking at developing our ETF product suite, that they did want to have existing T. Rowe Price strategies made available in the ETF format. And that goes back to that evolving preference that more and more clients, uh, or we're hearing from more and more clients, that um, they do have a growing preference for ETFs and the expansion of ETFs in their in their portfolios. So, um yeah, and I, I think it's also worth noting, just from a, from a style perspective, right, there were some significant changes um, with some of the passive indices last year. So in, in December of 2022, as an example, the S&P 500 growth and value indices went through their annual reconstitution. And according to S&P, um, that reconstitution was one of the highest turnovers on record. So you have the S&P growth index experiencing dramatic shifts across sectors and individual stocks, across energy, healthcare, tech, consumer discretionary. So you have names like Meta, uh, Microsoft, Amazon uh, driving markets this year, um, while at the same time you, you had a divergence um, between the value and the growth. So for, uh, through the first quarter of 2023, the spread between the Russell 1000 growth and the S&P 500 growth is roughly about 700 basis points. So this is, again, where we, we would make a case for active management um, that has more consistently stayed true to the investment style and, you know, not to have shift uh, as the indices have. So zero price T-chip strategy historically has stayed very true to its style. And, and this year it's having – a really strong year to date um, and is outperforming S&P growth by nearly 1,300 basis points. So, again, that's that's another overlay where I think um, if you're looking at active versus passive, many times clients or investors may think, oh, you know, passive is passive. But in reality, you really have to take a look at the index and you have to take a look at, you know, major reconstitutions like this and make sure that you're owning what you think you're owning. Um, and that shifts aren't um, really drifting uh, from a style perspective. Just a few minutes left here. When I look at that blue chip growth ETF, uh, I would say an important attribute is that it's utilizing the uh, quote unquote non-transparent or semi-transparent wrapper. 
And overall, I would say the uptake and usage of that wrapper has been slow, right? The adoption just hasn't been there for whatever reason, at least not in the way that I think some in the industry had hoped. I'm curious what you see as the value of that structure. And then I'll, I'll just add to that, and, and you noted this, that your most recent launches, those aren't leveraging the semi-transparent structure. They're, they're, they're fully transparent. So what's the thought process for using or not using this? Yeah, so we have launched both fully transparent and semi-transparent. So uh, five of our equity that we just launched are fully transparent. Our five fixed income ETFs are fully transparent. The five products that we are using, the semi-transparent process um, is around the existing strategies that have been in place uh, and have been available through mutual funds. So um, we have our own proprietary model to shield IP, um, and that's really coming from a good place. It's to protect the return pro- profile of the fund and protect all shareholders. So, you know, noting that the, the mechanics are, are, are exactly the same between a semi-transparent and a fully transparent product, both trade on exchange, both are trading very well. I think the big question when we launched the semi-transparent was, I think investors generally understood why we may want to protect IP. And why we want to protect IP is the fact that because the ETF strategy shares the same portfolio manager and is based on the same strategy as the mutual funds, those mutual funds are very large in, in scale and size. So if we were entering into a name or trading out of a name in that portfolio, that would be represented in the ETF. And if that ETF was fully transparent, that would open the door to potential front running, which could increase trading costs for us, which would ultimately over time degrade the return profile of the fund. So that's why we made the decision to basically shield IP to protect existing shareholders, both in the ETF as well as the mutual fund. So, again, it's coming from a very good place. Um, I think going forward, both are going to succeed and will continue to grow in, in size and scale. And part of the, you know, the semi-transparent approach, it is a new structure, and it was a new structure that was delivered into the market in 2020, Many clients are still in the process of approving that, uh, particularly some of the large distribution agents at the broker-dealers. So we do feel over time that will gain broader adoption. Once that happens, that will open up broader distribution capabilities and will also uh, lead to increased AUM. And as I mentioned, like we do hear from our clients that they're very happy that they now have that choice um, for, for the ETF for potential future allocations. Even some of our mutual fund holders and that and those strategies are starting to use the ETFs in a different way. And we saw that last year with some tax loss harvesting trades. Uh, we're seeing just again that that broader adoption of ETFs, where some clients are looking at increasing their future allocation into the ETF as a vehicle. But they do like the strategy; they want to maintain that exposure. They're going to now maintain that exposure through our ETFs. Just a minute left here to close our conversation, and really, this is a, a good bookend. I think if we go back to our discussion around the rise of active ETFs overall. But I think one of the things really helping here is the lower price point, lower expense ratios. And I saw that Mm -hmm. several of your new ETFs are coming in below 40 basis points, actually as low as 31 basis points with a TCAF, which is your new capital appreciation equity ETF. Can you just talk a little bit about your philosophy around uh, ETF pricing? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're constantly evaluating pricing uh, across our product suite. And, yeah, I would say if you look at the, the first generation of our products that we launched that are based off existing strategies, 
those have the same management fee at the mutual fund. So, and that is kind of the, the clean shares, if you will, the, the lowest price point of, of uh, the, the offering. And if you look at the new strategies, as I mentioned, these are newly designed and developed specifically to be an ETF. So in that case, you know, we did take a step back, look at the competitive landscape, look at the value proposition of what we're delivering. Um, and in ETF wrapper, as you mentioned, um, you know, being conscious of what um, the attributes of the ETF are and what clients have as an expectation of what's being delivered in ETF, I think it does come down to transparency, low cost, uh, that ability to trade, and um, that the tax efficiency piece of it. So we're very conscious and in tune with the market, with our clients, and want to continue to offer uh, really good products at a really good price point. And we think we've done that very well to date. Well, Tim, congratulations on the five new launches. I certainly wish you continued success as you build out the entire ETF suite. Thank you for joining me this week. Nick, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. That was Tim Coyne, head of ETFs at T. Rowe Price. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Newberger Berman. If you would like to learn more about Newberger Berman, you can visit nb.com slash ETF. Next week, I'll be joined by asymmetric ETFs, Darren Sharinga. They have uh, an interesting lineup of risk-managed ETFs, so we'll go through those in pretty good detail. And then Motley Fool Asset Management's Charlie Travers, uh, he's a portfolio manager. He'll spotlight several of their ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.